home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Greetings and salutations. My name is Doug and welcome to the podcast. Well, it's happened. The refinance has gone through and we now have zero, I repeat, zero consumer debt. And we have increased cash flow and we are building up our savings and it feels fantastic. Of course, we also have a much larger mortgage, but we can deal with that. There's just one more albatross around our neck, and that is the storage unit. I'll talk about that a little bit later, but first, I can't talk about our finances on this podcast without throwing in a one step forward, two steps back plot twist. But at least now we have the cash flow to pay for it. Now, this really has nothing to do with home improvements, but the lessons learned can definitely be applied. It's an example of why procrastination is bad. And maybe also how the cheap comes out expensive. Okay, it's winter, and the experts here in Ontario, Canada, all recommend switching out all-season radial tires for snow tires. Better traction, they say. And while I will always say to listen to the experts, the fact is, I've been driving for almost 38 years and have never had snow tires, and I can count on one hand the number of times the snow tires might have been helpful. I am by no means against snow tires. They're a good idea, but I think that I'm a good enough driver that I really haven't found a need for anything beyond all-season radials. And the expense of another set of rims and a set of snow tires, well, that just seemed unnecessary. Well, we recently had a bit of a snowfall, about 8 to 10 inches, overnight. I didn't have to work the next day, but I got up really early anyway to shovel the driveway and clean off my wife's car. I was coming back into the house as she was heading out the door to go to work. Be careful, I told her. You may want to take the van instead of the car, I told her. The van is heavier, and it handles better in the snow than the car does. But she took the car anyway. I watched as she backed out of the driveway onto our unplowed street, and she didn't seem to be having any trouble. So, satisfied, I headed upstairs to the bedroom to crawl back onto the comforter and return to blissful sleep. But just as I pulled the comforter up, my phone rang. And I knew immediately what happened. You stuck? Yeah, I'm at the end of the street, she said. Within a few minutes, I arrived at the intersection, and two neighbors were already trying to get my wife moving again. One gentleman was in the car trying to rock it while the other gentleman pushed, and I joined in with the pushing, but the car wasn't going anywhere. The tires were spinning helplessly, unable to get enough of a grip on the snow to move the car. We worked at it for about half an hour. A lot of work with the shovel, a lot of pushing, a lot of rocking. But it was clear that this was a battle that we were not going to win. 
My wife had already called into her job and let them know that she wouldn't be in. The next phone call was for a tow truck. About an hour later, the car was back in our driveway. The cost? Well, to move the car from where it was stuck, the driver used a winch. That was a hundred bucks. But even in its new location, the car was still immobile. The spinning tires just refused to grab. It was too much, you know, there was just too much snow. They hadn't plowed the street yet. So the driver ended up pulling the car up onto the flatbed and driving it the few hundred feet back to our house. That was another hundred bucks. So, two hundred dollars. And that was after I negotiated him down from two hundred and fifty dollars. Now, you can argue that if we had snow tires, the car wouldn't have got stuck. And you'd probably be right. I will argue that we wouldn't have got stuck if the tires that were on the car had any tread left. The funny thing is, I distinctly remember back in the summer saying that the car was due for new tires and that we should probably get them before winter. But somewhere along the line, that plan was forgotten. And we very well might have made it to the winter had it not been for a major snowfall. A couple inches of the white stuff? No problem. But half a foot or more proved to be simply too much to handle for the tires that had 140,000 kilometers on them. So, needless to say, a few days later, the car was at Canadian Tire getting some new rubber. Just some new all-season radials. Had we replaced them back in October, we might have saved a couple hundred bucks for the tow, and my wife wouldn't have missed work, although she was able to take a vacation day. Of course, the lesson here is that when you recognize a maintenance issue, take care of it before it becomes a problem. I am the last of the great procrastinators. I would have been one of the first, but, well, you know. So that is why our furnace is a priority this year. A technician assessed our equipment and declared that with regular maintenance, it could last up to another five years. That was five years ago. Another technician warned us that while the furnace was in good shape for its age, because of its age, we might not be able to get parts for it if something goes wrong. A home inspector will tell you that the average lifespan of a furnace is 15 to 20 years. Maybe 25 if you're lucky. Ours is almost 30 years old. We're on borrowed time here. It's got to get done this year. And it's a planned expense that we are now prepared for. But, before getting a new furnace, it makes sense to finish, or mostly finish, the basement first. I am pretty good at controlling drywall dust, but if dust is going to get into the equipment, best it get into the old equipment rather than the new. So, I recently got back to work on the basement. Now, I'd done some drywall a couple years ago, but the project sort of got put on hold. Why? Money, of course. Because I want to insulate the garage ceiling. And the best way to do that is with spray foam. 
the vapor barrier in the garage has deteriorated and spray foam doesn't require a vapor barrier. So that's the easiest way for us to insulate the ceiling. And since the cost of that project is less than the minimum truck charge, I decided why not have the remainder of the basement spray foamed at the same time? There's a cost to all of that, of course. But thanks to the refinance, we now have money set aside for that, as well as the furnace. The basement will be the eventual location of my home office, where I will also be recording the podcast, so I want to have some soundproofing between the laundry room and the office space. While the existing wall is only finished on the one side, the laundry room side is open framing, and I can see that the framing is kind of ugly. There's studs that are doubled up unnecessarily. There's extra pieces of wood here and there. It's it's a mess. Plus, I want to reconjigger some of the plumbing for the laundry room. So the plan is to clean up the framing, possibly use resilient channels for hanging the drywall, and the drywall I'm going to use will be quiet rock or silent FX soundproofing drywall. The existing drywall has to go. Why not just add a second layer of drywall, do you ask? Well, because the extra studs and whatnot will result in more sound transmission, so the framing really does need to be cleaned up. I have the opportunity to do things right now, so I don't have regrets later on. There are a couple ways to remove drywall. There's the fun way with the hammer and a pry bar, sometimes a reciprocating saw, and in extreme cases, a sledgehammer. It's a great way to vent frustrations, and it's also a great way to make a huge mess. Then there's the, well, for lack of a better word, the workmanlike way. This is a little more surgical. It's not nearly as much fun, but the mess is a lot more manageable. A pry bar is still an indispensable tool, but most of the work is done with a utility knife and a drill with a driver bit. You see, there are parts of the wall where the drywall screws will be visible. That is, unless we're talking about nails, but in my case, the drywall was hung with screws, and that's the way newer construction is done. But along the bottom, close to the floor, where the screws are covered by trim, they're usually not going to be covered with compound. The same with around door frames and window frames. If nothing else, these areas will give you an edge to work with. So once I got the trim off, I started by removing all the visible screws. With the trim removed, it's also very easy to find the joints between the sheets of drywall where, the, you know, where two sheets come together. Now, I was fortunate that I could also see the drywall from the other side of the wall, so the location of my joints were obvious. To get started, I carefully scored a nice straight line vertically in between the studs and scored another line along the joint where the two sheets of drywall met. So I basically scored a rectangle. And I was able to get enough leverage where I had removed the screws that I was able to carefully pry the drywall to the point where it simply snapped along the line that I had scored between the studs. And I was able to cut through the paper and remove the section easily. And because I was Between the studs, I had enough leverage when it came time to start loosening the next piece. 
I also now had the edge of the joint tape, which I was able to carefully pull off. Now, this was probably the messiest part of this endeavor because it caused the drywall joint compound to crumble, but it also revealed more screws that I could easily remove. Now, I, I realize that all of this is kind of hard to picture, but the point is, I did not approach this task as demolition, but rather disassembly. And that was satisfying in a different way. Breaking stuff is fun, but swinging a hammer or wielding a sawzall can cause unnecessary mess and even be dangerous. Taking the surgical approach might be more time-consuming, but you won't spend nearly as much time cleaning up. And with less dust in the air, there's also less dust in your lungs. So now I have something like 8 feet by 20 feet worth of drywall that is neatly stacked in a pile that has a footprint of about 4 feet by 16 inches. And that's going to be easy to transport out the back door and load into the minivan to haul off to the junkyard when the time comes. With the skeleton of the wall exposed, something jumped out at me. We can relocate the door to the laundry room. If we move the door to the laundry room, that's going to create an ideal spot for our freezer. Now, here's the deal with the freezer. There is a large walk-in closet in the laundry room that I'm going to line with shelves for storing stuff like Christmas decorations and school projects and a bunch of things that we may or may not ever use again, but we aren't quite ready to throw away. And I was going to make a space for the freezer in this closet because it's out of the way and there's really nowhere else to put the freezer right now. The freezer, by the way, is in storage, but that's beside the point. Well, of course, this is going to limit the amount of shelf space I can have, and it's also going to complicate the build if I'm kind of building in the freezer. Plus, I mean, I'd be building the shelves around an upright freezer. What if down the road we want to replace it with a chest freezer? So if we put the freezer where the laundry room door is right now, it's going to be more accessible. And we'll have the flexibility to replace that upright freezer with any style of freezer later on. And I can have uninterrupted shelves along the entire length of the closet. So it's, it's win, win, win all the way through. And right now the laundry room door is sort of hidden. It's tucked around a corner and you have to do this little zigzag in the basement in order to get to it. The new door is going to be in line with the stairs, a more direct route. It may not seem like a big deal, but on those days when you're doing multiple loads of laundry, saving a few steps here and there really does add up, especially when you have to retrace those steps to find the sock you dropped. I don't want this to turn into a major framing project given the current price of lumber, but the wall is framed 24 inches on center instead of 16, and with the resilient channels and the heavier weight of the silent FX drywall, I'd be more comfortable with 16-inch framing. And I still also have an exterior wall to finish framing before we can insulate. So, all in all, this project is going to cost us a few bucks. Which begs the question, we waited this long, why not wait until the price of lumber comes down? Well, <laughs> the latest... um 
latest industry projections that I've seen predict that the price of lumber will not be coming down anytime soon. We can expect high prices through to at least the end of this year. So this becomes yet another case of where the cheap comes out expensive because each month that the basement remains unfinished is another month that we are paying for the storage unit. So, you know, paying a premium now on one thing is going to save us money on the other thing. And while I'm on the topic of the cheap coming out expensive, here's something. Five years ago, when we realized that we were going to have to redo the basement, I decided that it would be a good idea to put in a subfloor, you know, to help with the dampness and temperature control. I mean, the carpet that was down there was going to have to come out. We were going to have to redo the floor anyway, so might as well make sure we do things right when the time comes. Lowe's sells this subfloor system called Dry Barrier. Unlike dry core and similar subfloors, uh, which have a layer of oriented strand board, this does not have any wood attached to it. Which makes sense, right? Why would you add wood when you're trying to keep everything moisture resistant? So I'd done the research, and I decided that I was going to be using dry barrier. And then Lowe's had a sale. Can't pass up a sale. 10% off is nothing to sneeze at. Plus, I would have the subfloor on-site ready to go when I needed it. But I charged it on the credit card. You know, the credit card that I carried a balance on for the last five years. So I've been paying interest on that purchase for the last five years. <laughs> Dumbass. Now, in my defense, I thought I was going to be at the point where I needed the subfloor a lot sooner, but... The very fact that we were carrying that debt is part of what put the basement on hold for five years to begin with. Like I said, though, the credit cards are now paid off so we can put that bonehead decision in the rear view mirror. And I do have the subfloor on hand ready to go. And I hope to have the basement done and finished by the end of this year. Before then we'll be able to bring all of our stuff out of storage so we can finally eliminate that expense. The storage situation has been frustrating. This was another case where something was supposed to be temporary but turned into long-term. After my dad passed away, we needed somewhere to store the family heirloomy stuff because our house, the money pit house, was a mess. But we were hiring contractors to fix up that house once and for all, so we could finally move that stuff into the house and all live happily ever after. Well, because we were doing that construction thing, we also moved a lot of our stuff out of the house and into the storage unit. And we never got to phase two with that house. We kind of got carried away with the budget on phase one, so the stuff sat in storage for seven years while we saved up for phase two. And then we moved. And just after we moved, we had this little problem with the basement flooding, which brings us to where we are now, 13 years later. Now, we have come to terms with the fact that most of what we've been paying to store, what is in storage now is destined for the landfill, 
or donation or yard sale. Books that take up a lot of room in boxes will go up on bookshelves in the basement. VHS tapes, DVDs are all going to be sorted out and our collection will be drastically pared down. Home movies will be digitized. Keepsakes and mementos are going to be a lot more difficult, but they too are going to be severely edited. We've actually been working on some of that now. I occasionally stop by the storage unit and pull a few boxes so we can go through them. It's a slow process, but if we can gradually nibble away now, decide what we're keeping, what we're getting rid of, it's going to be less work down the road. And, you know, since we're talking about procrastination here, this is something that we probably could have been doing before now. And speaking of getting rid of stuff, our lovely daughter started college in the fall. (laughs) No, seriously, our daughter started college in the fall. And even though it's local, she wanted the experience of living in the dorm. Now, we did have enough money saved for her education. Plus, we wanted the experience of being empty nesters. Well, actually, it was more about the convenience because she doesn't drive, so she'd be relying on us for transportation. She doesn't like driving, and don't even get me started about the expense of a car. So anyway, we bought a bunch of stuff for the dorm. That's my point. Well, with the COVID and remote learning, she decided that the program that she was in wasn't for her. And so she is back at home. Now, I think at this point that she would be back at home anyway, even if she was still in the program. But when things get back to normal, she has a plan B. But now we have all that extra stuff, that new stuff that we bought for the dorm. Kitchen stuff that we don't need. Toaster oven that we don't have room for. Since her plan B involves another continent, she's not going to take a lot of stuff with her. So, do we hold on to it in case plan B falls through? And for how long? Or do we cash out what we can now and free up our space? It's a dilemma. Turns out, simplifying is complicated. And with that, I am going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. The website is thumbandhammer.com, where you can read detailed posts about all our past home improvements, as well as find the show notes for this and every other podcast episode. Comments and suggestions are welcome, and you can email them using the form at thumbandhammer.com contact. If you have a home improvement question, I would love the opportunity to offer my insight and maybe even feature your question on a future episode. Talk to you soon. I will be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, cheers.